Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. What's going on, guys? Tamarcus here again today, and I am excited uh, to talk with our our guest for today, uh, Zachary Wagner. Uh, He is a minister currently pursuing his Ph.D. at Oxford University. Super jealous about that. Uh, Zachary is the editorial director of the Center uh, for Pastor Theologians, um, where he co-hosts the CPT podcast. And he wrote the book that we're going to be discussing today called Non-Toxic Masculinity, Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. Zachary, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Tamarcus. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, likewise. Uh, as, as we get ready to jump in, uh, could you just tell us a little bit more about, um, I know we gave our like elevator pitch of, of what you do, but sure. could you talk a little bit more about your work and maybe even your um, PhD um, and, and what you're working sure. on there? Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Uh, sometimes people are disappointed when they hear that I'm studying at Oxford. They're disappointed to hear that I'm American. I am not <laughs> from England. I do not have the accent, unfortunately, uh, but I am living here currently. Um, and I, uh, as you mentioned, I'm pursuing a PhD over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, I'm specializing in New Testament. The research topic that I'm working on has nothing to do with this book that I wrote, believe it or not. (laughs) It's entirely unrelated. I'm working on the idea of reward in the New Mm. Testament. Um, And uh, the title of the thesis is Wages from God in Matthew and Paul. So looking at teachings from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if if you're persecuted, your reward is going to be great in heaven, or uh, when you give to the poor, don't blow trumpets in front of you like the hypocrites because they've already received their reward or their mm. wage. Um, but instead, uh, store up treasure in heaven. That's kind of what's going on in Matthew. And then 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 9 and Paul. I mean, you, you got to be careful asking a PhD student about their research because I can I can go for a while on that. Oh, we're here for uh, But that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm working on for on the academic side. And then... Um, uh, as you mentioned, I also work for this organization called the Center for Pastor Theologians. And what we're trying to do at the CPT is bring together this world of academic theology and the world of life in the church and pastoral ministry in the local church and bring those together uh, instead of uh, separating them out, as is often the case. So mm-hmm. that's a little more about me and what I'm up to. I love that. Yeah. So often I hear I, um, you know haven't been in seminary, Bible college, whatever, like you hear people talking about, like, do I want to go the pastoral route or do I want to do more like the theologian thing? And it's like, 100%. Hey, like there, there's a space to like love and care and shepherd people and uh, be deeply concerned with the life of the mind. And so I love that. Love that. Yeah. I'll just to interject there real quick. That I think was the spot that I was at maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. as I was thinking about this is, you know, Sometimes the way it's framed up, if if you're a young person and you want to go into ministry, it's like, well, are you do you, do you love people or do you love ideas? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> that like, question. Why, why, I was kind of like, why not both? Why can't why can't we do both of those things? I don't want to 
I don't want to choose between that. So that's a little bit of uh, the path I'm on. So totally agree. That's it. Ideas have consequences that affect people. Well, I love love that. Uh, as we as we shift gears, kind of into the book, I kind of have a, a two part question to, to start it off before we kind of get into contents. But uh, I I did listen to your conversation that you got to have with Preston Sprinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's considered like podcast creep, but uh, listen to that. <laughs> really enjoyed it. And I thought something as we get started here that would be really helpful. Um, one, if you could tell us a bit about what uh, what dr- drove you to to write the book, but also yeah. um, y'all talked about uh, the audience that you had in mind um, when you were writing mm. it and uh, what how you were trying to uh, engage uh, with that audience and maybe some of the things that, um, you know, could be prohibitors in them engaging this kind of conversation, maybe even with sure. from a Christian perspective. So, yeah, anyway, if you could just share a little bit about that, uh, what led you to write the book and who were you writing it for? Sure. No, great questions. I, I think like many people, I was really disturbed by some of the patterns I saw in the broader culture mm-hmm. and also in the church as it relates to sexual abuse, uh, particularly sexual abuse perpetrated by men. Not that it is always the case that it's perpetrated by men, but it uh, tends to be uh, disproportionately men who are the ones who sexually abuse other people. So you think about the Me Too movement, but then also following on from that, the Church Too movement. And I could Mm -hmm. rattle off, I don't know if we need to spend time rattling off scandals and different things that have emerged over the past few years, but that was a big thing that was on my mind right. as I was like, man, all of these Christian men or all these problems uh, that we see patterns, not just in the culture, but in the church, who are acting in these really, really uh, deplorable ways. Uh, so that's kind of the broader cultural conversation right. that I had on my mind, I think, like many people. But then there's also this personal story that I talk about at some length in the book, which had to do with my personal walk, my experience with my sexuality as a young person growing up in what is sometimes today called purity culture, uh, and also in my marriage and the challenges and struggles associated with uh, not just my sexuality, but also mine and my wife's relationship, our intimate relationship. Yes. And she uh, gives her her consent for me to share about that in a setting like this and in the book. Uh, But a big complicating factor of our relationship was the fact that she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where, and and in the context of the church, I should add. So that's kind of where this cultural conversation and my personal experience came together and then add in the additional variable of purity culture, I suppose. And maybe we can talk more about that if, if we need to give some context there. Yeah. Um, and then, but then in terms of who the book is for, I think there's a lot of young people uh, I don't know how old you are, Marcus, but I think a lot of people in that kind of millennial-ish and down mm-hmm. generation, maybe who grew up in the church or uh, got saved at youth group during their teen years, something like right. that, who are looking at various things going on in the culture and in the church and are seeing what they understand to be a lot of hypocrisy or the things that they were taught about sexuality, about themselves, about, you know, follow these rules and it'll work out for you in your marriage in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're seeing a lot of that just not pan out the way they thought it would. Um, and I certainly experienced some of that, I think, disappointment or frustration myself. 
But I also see lots of my peers, people that I grew up with, um, losing faith, losing their relationship to the church, their relationship with Christ. And a lot of times the presenting issue on this has something to do with sexuality, whether it's uh, things having to do with gay marriage or LGBTQ questions, or it's suffering and abuse in one's own life or the hypocrisy that you see in the way Christians are responding to political scandals uh, when they're on the Republican side versus when they're on the Democrat side, or uh, even just uh, the, the, the pain of seeing someone you greatly respected uh, embroiled in some type of really heinous scandal. Yeah. And what I, one of the things I had in mind when writing this book was to, as a, as a peer, I guess, in a way express, uh, to people like, Hey, I see this and this is upsetting to me as well. Let's talk about this together. Let's yeah. think this through. Let's think about the messages we received, uh, having to do with sexuality, what scripture in the Christian tradition teaches, what should be there, what shouldn't be there, what was maybe harmful about some of the messages we got growing up. Right. And I think of, this is the last thing I'll say on this, I I don't think of my book as like a manifesto. You know, I'm not like coming in as some like masculine sexuality, like guru or This expert. is what it is. You know, I thought, yeah. I, I, I've thought a lot about it, but I hope it just kind of starts it starts conversations. Right. You know, I don't expect readers to agree with every little thing I have to say. Um, and I, I kind of don't need them to or want them to. I want them to be um, able to think through some of these things themselves and discuss them in their community and all sorts of things like that. So that's a bit of why I wrote the book, who I have in mind, and, uh, you know, what I, I hope some of the outcomes from it might be. No, I, yeah. And thank you for, for sharing it. I, I thought that was particularly helpful. I to your question earlier, I'm, I'm right at 30. So I'm, you know, well in that mm. window. And yeah. even as I recall some of my own uh, experiences in the church, like uh, there, there have been a number of things where this is kind of a half-baked thought. I was thinking of a kind of a picture to use as you were talking, but I've often heard people talk of like the relationship between like the Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes. And there's like the voice of Proverbs is like uh, largely like the ideal, like, hey, you do this, it goes well. Yes. You do this, it goes bad. And Correct. there's a way that like Ecclesiastes and Job kind of helps like, yeah, but. Fill out the picture Sometimes, a bit, yeah. yeah, it doesn't quite work. The way. All right. And there's a, there's a sense in which it's like you need wisdom. Um, these ideals are good for, for setting um, our ethical course, but we also need wisdom and understanding to know that uh, life under the sun in a fallen and broken world doesn't always work out the way we think it does, or there's our categories yes. aren't always super perfect. And I, I think if there's like a, a way to be uh, generous with some of the, the teachings that I received in purity culture, which I'm going to have you kind of help define here in a second. Um, but it's mm. like there was a there was a sense in which it tried to give these really crisp categories of like, if you do this, then it'll just, you know, don't have sex until Absolutely. you're married. And then when you get married, it's easy. You'll never have to think about it. It won't be difficult. It's not confusing. You'll never have to exercise, you know, self-control again. You know, and, it, and maybe it wasn't yes. that explicit, but it felt like that. And to your point, yes. and I think for young people in particular, it can feel that because when you're when you're young, you want this the the world to kind of make sense and to have formulas and be able to predict outcomes and all these sorts of things. So, right? Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, and actually, what's needed is 
a a thoughtful approach of yeah just just a balanced understanding of what those things uh look like whether you're married or not um because also that's not everybody's um journey but i guess bef- before we progress further in that dialogue could you maybe give to a listener who's like what do we mean by purity culture like what sure. at least how how did how how do you understand it as you're writing your book yeah so i think people different people can mean different things by purity culture some people might mean any kind of sexual ethic or sexual teaching that creates boundaries around when people should or shouldn't have sex specifically the boundary that sex before marriage is uh, morally wrong or something like that that's how some people define it i don't find that entirely helpful Mm -hmm. instead i like to define purity culture in context of the last 50 years or so of history in the american church and um the way I define it is it's a set of resources, rhetorical strategies, um, ways of teaching young people in particular, especially teenagers, yeah. about sex in the church um, that is responding to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and mm-hmm. 1970s. So this is, you know, this massive cultural movement that. I think largely came out of the invention of the birth control pill. So people had opportunity or access to sex, whether outside of marriage or sex without children. And that ties into abortion and out of wedlock births and all these sorts of things. And that I think caused it's important to, it's important to flag Mm -hmm. that, that I think caused some real struggles and issues. Uh, I don't think anyone likes seeing kids born out of, out of wedlock. I don't think anyone uh, likes abortion just generically, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. I think most of us would agree that like it would be good if we could avoid abortions. You know, even people on the on the pro-choice side of that have said we want abortions to decrease. We want them to be be rare and safe and all of this. Um, And then, of course, like the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and all sorts of things like this. So uh, the church, uh, particularly the kind of conservative white evangelical church uh made an effort to kind of commend something different to the young people that were growing up in the 90s and the and the and the aughts or the 2000s in particular which is yep. around when you and i grew up so sorry you get you asked for a quick quick definition but oh, i, I like to get that context because yeah. i think the context is so important because it's really easy to say purity culture is just you know anyone who says sex outside of marriage is wrong or something like that. Right. I'm like, eh, it's a little, it's a bit more of a story than that. Yeah, it's more to it, and it was so, it was it was responding to a real problem, as you said. Yeah. Yes, correct, and and not everything that came out of the sexual revolution was was bad. You know, that's a long that's a longer conversation. Um, but I think particularly when a lot of folks think about purity culture, they think about they think about books. In particular, sometimes they think about mm-hmm. books like Joshua Harris's "I Kiss Dating Goodbye." I think for the men's side of the of the conversation that I am focusing on in my book, a lot of people think about the book "Every Man's Battle" by Fred Stoiker and Stephen Arterburn. Um, and but there's also you know purity group events and meetings and true love waits and music and all of this sort of stuff. It was like this kind of resource engine around making sure young people didn't have sex before they got married. And then the flip side of this was if you hold off on sex before you're married, save yourself, quote unquote, until marriage, 
then you can expect that God will bless you not only with a spouse, but with a uh, uh, shame-free, happy, joyful, easy sex life in your marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of this formula where the pitch to young people, as it were, was hold off on sex now as a down payment on the sex that you'll have later. Yes. So I kind of have this cheeky way of saying it in the book. It's it's your best it's your best sex life later. It's your yeah. best sex later. Um, and it, yeah, so I think I'll stop there. Um, that's kind of the overview that I would give for, for purity culture. And I think it really hit its peak around, you know, kind of 2000 to 2005 is when this stuff was at its, it was the the biggest part of the conversation. And, uh, most people reading those books and all sorts of things like that. That's really helpful. And I think, you know, I guess to kind of continue in that vein, there's a way in which, um, right. The word even purity uh, what I think yeah. about how I was lived. Yeah, to your point, I remember growing up and going, being in the youth group, we had purity conferences. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's just important to keep, uh, as we move through like this tension, because like there, there are things that I remember, I think back about that, where it's like, man, this was, this was a really helpful conversation. There's other things that I think back and I'm like, man, that was a really unhelpful conversation in retrospect. Totally. Uh, but but one of the things, and I think you you talk about well in your book is, the there's a way in which like um in this context the word the biblical understanding of the word purity kind of got atrophied right where it was like yes in my so, mind so the way like purity means uh abstinence until marriage and it's like if right. i'm not engaged in sexual activity until i'm you know until i'm married then i'm pure um mm. and that's what the bible means when it's talking about it uh and you you actually tell us it's actually a little bit more expansive and in a different way of of thinking about it. Could you maybe touch on that some? Yeah, I think this is shows a little bit just how the overemphasis on <clears throat> quote unquote sexual purity made it so that I think an entire generation of people tended to miss the bigger picture of what Scripture is saying when it talks about purity. So, um, you know, when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, Hmm. so they will see God, you know, the word pure, it just means, it means unstained. It means, uh, you know, clean. Hmm. There's nothing explicitly sexual about what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, but I know for me, when I was reading that, when I was a teenager, you know, having all this purity, sexual purity rhetoric zipping every way around me in youth group and otherwise. I thought Jesus meant like, blessed are those who don't sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend or don't masturbate or aren't watching pornography or whatever the case may be, uh, for they will see God. And like, that's not a wrong application of the verse necessarily. You know, sexual immorality is definitely a category in scripture, and we can talk about that. But the sexual immorality category is smaller than the purity category. Yes. So I cite um, in the book, I discuss a passage in Isaiah where God is telling the people of Israel that they need to cleanse themselves. Uh, they need to purify themselves. Um, and, you know, my purity culture ears hear that and like, oh, man, they're probably, you know, they're probably having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that mm-hmm. before they got married. Um, and, uh, but instead what Isaiah goes on to say is that they're, uh, oppressing the poor and they are 
uh, not caring for widows yeah. and these other very important categories of injustice that have led the people of Israel to be Unclean. impure yeah. is what Isaiah is saying. Um, and you can list any number of passages. Just I think it's so important for people who grow up in this. When you see that purity language in the Bible, it's it's not necessarily it doesn't not mean anything sexual. It certainly can include that. But it's so much but more than that. There's so much, it's so much more than that. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to his word? You know, I read that and I think, how can a young man stop watching porn by memorizing Bible verses? And again, that's probably a perfectly okay application of that verse in some sense. But I think when we narrow that purity category to just the sexual, um, it can put blinders on the bigger picture of what of what scripture and the holy spirit might be telling us in those texts and it can make us kind of weirdly obsessed with the sexual as the only category of sin that's really really mm. significant um when there's a lot more a lot more going on in scripture yeah no i i feel that and i yeah i i think back to so often when i would sit down with my you know uh, disciplers and stuff at the time, and they're you know asking like you know how's your week going and how's thing. It's like I would gauge how I'm doing with God depending on like well have I been lustful this week or like did I you yes. know, did I dabble in pornography and it's and to your point it's like though that is a praise God for those conversations and for men that He put in my life um, that one um, we had a relationship such that we could talk about those things. Uh, but number two, it's like. Man, there was so much more going in, going on in my heart um, that would have that that had me unclean that also needed yeah. to be brought to that table, um, yeah. and that yeah, the overemphasis is it's less about oh we shouldn't talk about those things and it's more so like hey there are so many more things uh, God actually wants us engaged with and thinking about as we're um, processing yeah. that and and not and less of a sense of like overwhelming us with like oh man it's even it's like yeah, we're, we're, we are way more sinful than we we possibly could imagine. But also to know, oh well, that means that God's so much more gracious than I mm -hmm. ever imagined, and that the there it just it opens up the the window um, in a number of ways. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna touch touch one more thing, a, a quote from your book uh, that I I think was really helpful in this regard too. Uh, you were talking about chastity, mm. and you said uh, it's not something we are born with and then try to keep. Neither is it a virtue only single people are called to grow in. Chastity is a calling for all Christians, one that we grow into more and more as we mature. Um, and, man, could you just speak to, I know mm -hmm. one of the things, I get to do, I do young adult ministry. I get to speak with a lot of uh, couples, you know, prior to marriage, while they're married. And one of the things that I'm always trying to encourage, especially before marriage, is like, hey, if you have this picture of like right now you are trying to, you know, uh, practice temperance and, you know, self-control. And then when you get yeah. married, it's all wheels off. And it's yeah. just like, that's, <laughs> I just, I just know that that is not the way this works. Could you just, could you talk to the importance of that specifically in that context? Like for, for the young, young engaged yes. couple about to get married, just <clears throat> got married. How this, why this is so applicable. Oh man. So I saw an exchange on Twitter 
um, uh, just recently within the past week or two, where someone was talking about how the provision for this is based on a reading of 1 Corinthians 7, mm-hmm. uh, where the Apostle Paul says that if people cannot control themselves, that they can go ahead and get married because it's better to better to be married than to burn is the language that he says there. And a lot of people use that as this idea that to support this idea that as an unmarried person, you're kind of white knuckling it. You're keeping it at, you know, keeping it in your pants, keeping it under wrap as best you can. And the unmarried life is characterized by self-control, but then the married life is about sexual fulfillment. So Mm -hmm. I'm sexually frustrated when I'm single and then I'm sexually fulfilled when I'm married. But anyone who's been married for about longer than 10 minutes knows that it's just not how <laughs> that's not how marriage works. It's not like mm-hmm. it's not like your spouse is like sexually available to you every time you have a thought. And if you put that pressure on them, you're not treating them like a human being. You're treating you're treating them like an object, like just an outlet for your out of control sexual desires. Mm-hmm. So I think when you fill out that picture, you realize that that that's not what Paul means in that passage. Uh, He says elsewhere in various places that all Christians are called to self-control, and that certainly includes controlling your own body sexually. And that's not just a virtue that single people are called to. It's also one that married people are called to. And and Mm -hmm. something I say is that marriage requires a lot of sexual self-control, not just in the sense of like, I need to not go, you know, be cheating on my spouse, you know, emotionally, physically, whatever the case, that involves self-control, certainly. But it also involves a control over your own sexual feelings and how you engage your spouse with those feelings and um, respecting when, you know, if it's not going to work for your partner right now or under these circumstances, you kind of just got to be an adult and deal with that. Um, Paul also talks about couples not Uh, depriving one another. And what I take that to mean is that you shouldn't kind of hold out on your spouse as a way to get something else from them or as a way to manipulate the the relationship in a way Mm -hmm. that is unloving or unkind. Um, And I, I, again, I, whether in, um, you know, one's own relationship, (laughs) excuse me, or, uh, or just in conversations with other people, you can see how that can be a dynamic that develops in marriages and that can, uh, I think provide the the enemy a foothold to enter into that relationship with yeah. some temptation and some sin. I think that's like, I don't want to pretend that's not real, but I also don't want people to use what Paul says in first Corinthians seven to kind of justify their own lack of self-control, even yeah. within marriage. It's and like, their you own can never tell immaturity. me no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that man, that's not treating someone like an like an image bearer. Yeah. That's treating someone like an object that you can use. So, um, yeah. And and this whole idea that, you know, singleness is sexual frustration only happens when you're single. One of the big themes of my book is that I found my marriage for a variety of reasons to be terrifically uh, sexually frustrating. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think I was prepared for that in purity culture. I was Mm -hmm. like, hey, I did. I put my work in. I did the thing. Yeah. I did the thing. I followed the rules. And now it's supposed to be like that part of my life where I'm frustrated uh, is behind me. And that just wasn't the case. And I needed to continue to grow up and continue to, to use the language from the quote, grow up into the virtue of chastity, which is not uh, merely about not having sex. I think it's also about uh, being mature and treating others with honor and respect, uh, as you act out your sexuality. 
a theme we keep coming back to is this idea. What I what I see so much in even in our conversation now in reading the book, it's a a call to to broaden the conversation. Um mm. and I I think about a one of my one of my mentors, um, one of the first times I remember kind of that this, you know, perfect little bubble of purity culture kind of got popped for me. Um, mm. I, you know, I'm in high school, I'm struggling with pornography. And mm-hmm. I meet with him and I'm like, I'm like, this thing is kicking my butt. Like, I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he started to ask me questions totally, un- like, in my mind, totally unrelated. Like, hey, um, yes. how are you, like, I know you, like, play video games. Like, what's your kind of, like, how are you, like, balancing and setting boundaries in this regard with it? And I'm like, I don't know. And he oh, was like, you know, are you, he like, well, have you ever, like, practiced fasting? Like, do you, is that, like, mm. a part of your, like, rhythms and practices? And I'm like, no. And just all these other areas in my life. And I was like, I'm like, this. what does this have to do? And he was like, well, if you, yes. if you can't control your appetites in any other area of your life, that's kind of like low-hanging fruit for you. How do you expect to exercise self-control in this thing that has such a grip on you? And yes. it just, like, my, it was like my, my brain exploded um mm-hmm. but really it really this this idea of uh, of right self-control is a, is a fruit of the spirit that is one yeah. that we have access to because the spirit embodies us if we know love and trust jesus and that that hits every part of our lives not just our um our sexual you know appetites but also that and it's like as we as we grow in the strength of self-control um, rather that's in regard to uh, our relationship with food, how we take care of our bodies, uh, the way we spend our time, how we're engaging with social media, right? You you pick the mm-hmm. different avenue. It's like as we are growing in those areas across the board, this also becomes an area um, that we're able to grow and strengthen. And it doesn't start and stop with marriage. It is, a, like you said, it is a part of the Christian Absolutely. life uh, for all. And I, th- I just think that's such an important category for people to have as they're thinking about thinking about that. Yeah, I Bill Struthers, who's a psychologist at Wheaton College, wrote a book called Wired for Intimacy that I believe mm-hmm. has a, a second edition that's out now. Um, it's about kind of pornography and the male brain and these these types of things. But something that I've heard him say to a lot of, he says, a lot of young men will talk to me about the struggle with pornography and this and that, the other thing. But we often use the language of addiction, like I'm addicted to pornography. You know, I, I certainly would have described myself, um, you know, at different points of, of my life when I was younger in that way. And it can feel that way. You know, if mm. you're struggling with this on the daily, maybe multiple times a day, and you feel like you're acting out um, and you don't have a capacity not to do it, that feels like an addiction. Um, but something that... Bill Struthers will highlight is that uh, this actually looks more like a compulsive behavior. So something that he would say to young men is you don't have a lust problem. You have a self-control problem Hmm. that is manifesting in a battle with lust or masturbation or pornography or whatever the case may Mm be. And um, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. It's not to say that you know, so then we just kind of set up blockers and parameters and try to kind of cut ourselves off from from the access to porn. Let's just keep it in that example. But we're actually not cultivating our virtue or growing in the mm. fruits of the spirit 
right. or um, growing in our capacity to say no to our our passions. I love I love that you use that language because I think this is the language of Scripture in the New Testament is yeah. fleeing from the passions of the flesh, which certainly includes. You know, I found in my life when I I think got um, to a better place in my relationship with like pornography or my the way i would soothe myself through compulsive sexual behavior um i found that i started to struggle with compulsive behaviors around food or around drinking more and that virtue that or that vice i should say that had kind of for years of my life had been centered centered on the the sexual um was showing up in other places so mm. Man, that's uh, that just kind of changes the conversation, doesn't yeah. it? From uh, oh man, I'm just like this terrible, lustful, lustful person because I'm a man, and that's how men are, and I'm falling into that. And um, there's there's a bigger picture uh, yeah. going on a lot of times. It seems to me. Yeah, and I think I even think that's important to note. You know, especially we've talked about in previous episodes because this this isn't just a man a male problem. Uh, yes. It's also for women, and there's. I think to your point, there's a there's a tons of different reasons of why somebody could be running to pornography or something of the sort. Maybe it's out of anxiety, maybe it's for a sense of control mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, if it's if we're not exercising those virtues, they as you said, they show up in other places. And I think that's so um important. Uh I wanna shift gears a little bit. Um, in the the third part of your book. Uh, you kind of walk through these different stages in a man's life. Um, and so I, I guess before I get into the further question, can we just talk a little bit about those, the different the different stages, and then in particularly uh, the significance of that like childhood stage? Sure. Yeah, so this was, I think it connects to what we were just talking about. Yeah. This was my way of trying to replace this purity paradigm where you kind of have this pure state that you're born into um, and you can break that or fracture it or compromise it by sinning sexually is a lot of times the way it is. So mm. then you're less pure, your virginity is less of a gift that you give to your spouse or something yeah. like that. It's like you're the um, clean napkin, but when you mess up and you're like a torn. Yeah. Napkin or the chewed up gum, gum, you know, there's yeah. all these terrible, there's all these terrible analogies that just make people feel like crap. Um, and, uh, I wanted to replace that with this idea of we're born immature and perhaps when we reach puberty, we are immature sexually and you expect people to, when they're immature, they might act in ways that are wrong, but you can account for it in a certain amount on, on their immaturity and you expect them to grow up. You know, you expect, you know, 25 year old men, hopefully to have a better uh, relationship to their anger or their emotions than 13 year old boys do. Like mm-hmm. this is just how we think about all sorts of virtues and sins and things like that. Right. So I wanted to change the conversation around male sexuality into kind of a growing up narrative rather than a, a kind of you've compromised your pure status. Um, because that almost that's almost like a works righteousness, isn't it? Mm. Like you got to be perfect mm-hmm. um, or else you're not, you're not, worthy of god's love you're not worthy of your future spouse spouse's love or your current spouse's love if you ever you know mess up in this way um 
And then that also, I think, gives opportunity to start. And I have a, a chapter in the book where I talk about childhood. Um, and then the title of that chapter is Before You Knew You Were Sexual. Um, and I think, again, connecting to our conversation about compulsive sexual behavior, so often we don't realize the ways that our relationship to our sexuality ties back to our experiences of our body, of our sexuality, of our relationship with our parents or, you know, other adults from when we were kids before mm. puberty. Um, and this is something that I was really helped with uh, by a therapist who kind of similar to what you're talking about. I'm talking about, you know, my struggles with lust. And then he starts asking me questions that to me appear to have nothing to do mm -hmm. with the struggle to lust. Um, but he's asked me like, what do you think that's doing for you? What do you think is what, mm -hmm. what does that remind you of from when you were a kid, when you feel that what's going on in your body and what do those feelings in your body remind you of from when you were a kid? And, um, then of course <clears throat> there are, uh, many men and I'm, uh, I'm sure there are men in your community or who are listening now that had unwanted, uh, sexual experiences when they were younger maybe they were exposed to pornography at a very young age where they had no context for what was happening or they were abused by an older sibling or a cousin or uh, an uncle or an aunt or whatever the case may be and man that all all the data from psychologists who study this sort of thing is overwhelmingly points to the fact that those earliest sexual experiences particularly when they are accompanied by confusion or a, a lack of power or agency, which is um, almost always the case for, for children who find themselves in situations like that, those um, cut deep into the, into the makeup of our brains and the mm. ways that our body respond, body responds emotionally and uh, engages with the world around us. And that was a conversation that was often missing in purity culture and in my discipleship uh, growing up. And for people that I talked to from my generation and interviewed for the book, um, it's just kind of like not accounted for the way yeah. those uh, childhood experiences shape shape us. I love I love uh, you the way you categorize that because it to me it does it does multiple things. I think one of one of the hugest you mentioned is like it it moves us away from this, like um, this works righteousness thing. Mm -hmm. um, it remind it, it, it reminds us that, Hey, all of, all of us are, are born and shaped in iniquity, right? Like we, we need, we need maturing. We need, we need saving. We need rescue. Uh, we need our hearts to be changed. And we all start at that. We all start in this immature space uh, mm -hmm. regardless of whether there's a struggle with pornography or not or lust or lying mm -hmm. or wh whatever the case may be and there there's a way that that like um i find even in conversations when we talk uh about you know lgbtq community and things like that there's mm -hmm. a way when you can like um i guess uh what's the word de like uh radicalize the sin like this is so other than yeah. anything and it's like actually yeah. this is this is like most other human experiences of brokenness um that yeah. there that there's biblical categories for how um god actually uh is able to redeem and work through the so like the narratives of like if you 
well, if you mess up now, then like you'll never be able to repair or like give your future yes. this right. It's um, it kind of unwinds some of that, and it's like, hey, all of this is within the realm of things that God has uh, redemptive power to to change and in, in uh, work in our lives. But I want to mm. go back to this 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 idea of the, the childhood states too, because you you talk about some ways in which, right? If we think of the some of the influences and how they are are shaping, like you say, the way the mind is developing and whatnot, the you know movies, um, mm-hmm. books, and and narratives around you know what you know what young boys are, how they should should respond. Same sure. thing with young girls. Um, how how have you seen some of that? be unhelpful and then what are what are some of the ways that you propose like um i guess destigmatizing uh some of these narratives help give some some freedom and i guess better categories uh for, for young men sure uh something i you know I, I i hope this is helpful but one of the things that i talk about in the book is the way the even childhood narratives, uh, fairy tales and different things like that give certain categories and scripts to young people where we have this idea of the heroic knight who, you know, slays the dragon and gets the girl and that there is a romantic relationship for you on the other side of, um, You know, like if you act in a heroic way, that's something you as a young man are entitled to in some way. That's a way to to win a a woman's or a girl's affection to exercise. And it's not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's not like that was. Explicitly stated as a type of sexual conquest, but I think that category can get kind of into your bones as a young person Hmm. and then. I think, you know, a more tame way that that can act out is a sense of entitlement, or I shouldn't say tame, like a more cut, um, tame is the right word. I mean, like everyday way, you know, we're not climbing towers and slaying dragons and this and that and the other thing. But I think it can plan itself into boys' minds as a, if I do X, then I deserve Y from this girl or mm-hmm. from this woman, or even from my wife, you know, I did the dishes, or I clean, you know, what, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm entitled to this type of attention and affection from you. Um, and I've just found in my experience that uh, women don't tend to respond well, <laughs> when uh, guys are in uh, expecting them to follow a script. Yeah. Um, certainly, when there's a sense of kind of sexual entitlement underneath it. So, you know, I don't mean to dig on all the virtues that are, you know, bound up in chivalry and this and that, because there are genuine virtues. But right. I think when the carrot on the on the on the stick for boys is like, this is how you get romantic affection, this is how you get access to sex is by acting in these heroic ways, rather than just that's just a good and honorable and uh healthy and heroic thing to do, whether you get that kind of sexual service i mean in some listeners might feel like that's a a crass way of describing it yeah. and maybe it is i'm just trying to highlight the kind of mechanism underneath a lot of these stories that were influential in my thinking when i was growing up so people like to dig on disney princesses and like the way they create scripts for young girls but the kind of male side of that narrative i i I think also creates scripts for young boys so this is different now i think perhaps than it used to be um 
But still something I think we need to be aware of is the way that entertainment and books and movies and things like that are shaping young people's and boys and girls' expectations for what their romantic and their sexual relationships might be like growing up. Mm -hmm. And also just the, um, you know, people talk about the Barbie movie and uh, something I appreciated about the Barbie movie was that it didn't require Barbie and Ken to have this kind of romantic connection at the end of it. It actually Mm. gave them, and uh, Ken in particular, I I feel like it asked a hard question, which is like, Ken, what, who are you if you and Barbie don't get married? Like, Mm. what does it mean for you to be a man? What does it mean for you to be a person that's, um, you know, to put it in a Christian context, to trying to live out your calling as a man and grow into maturity and follow Jesus? What does that mean apart from this one kind of romantic relationship? And this is the thing that the culture still continues to do is just kind of making that sexual relationship, that partner relationship, everything where we can't imagine what being a being a fulfilled human being might be apart from that and that starts real real early it seems to me yeah. um in the in the ways that we start thinking about stories and narratives and where that they got married and lived happily ever after is is the inevitable ending uh isn't it so as you were talking it just made me think isn't it so beautiful and helpful that like we can look at uh the ultimate hero and our savior and it's mm-hmm. like his relationship with women and mm-hmm. uh, how he was able to have a relationship with women, cared for yes. women, and it never terminated in marriage or sexual activity. Absolutely. Lived and died a single man and I'd argue lived one of the most fulfilled, the most fulfilled life um, you could have. And it's like, uh, what a picture um, to get yes. yeah, to, to what you're saying. Yeah. Something I sometimes say is that Jesus, despite being single... And something I talk about in the book is that he was a, like he was actually a man, like yes. a male human being with a male body, complete with the sexual desires and urges that we associate with being a sexed human being, male or female. Um, but he lived a single a single life, as you already said. And despite that, sometimes I say that Jesus was and is the most human being who has ever mm. lived. He's not less human for uh, not being uh, a part of a marriage relationship. But, uh, you know, theologically, we look at Scripture, Jesus is actually more human than we are because he lived as God intended us to live without sin. So, man, that that we got to we got to sit with that, I think. Yeah, that's a point to ponder for sure. As we kind of get ready to to wrap up and I think we we've already kind of hit on it with destigmatizing some of this. But if you could maybe just talk a little bit about the hyper-spiritualized romance um, that can be, I don't know, that can like infiltrate uh, teenage boys and just their dating experience <laughs> and, and, and what that looks like. And how can we present a, a better alternative? What's a more, uh, again, what's a, a more maybe sober-minded way to approach mm. and think about that um, that scripture would, would put forward? Yeah, I mean, this was this kind of hyper spiritualization of romance. For me, it it came out of uh, I kissed dating goodbye. It came out of books by Elizabeth Elliot. You know, and different people with different temperaments, guys and girls, may respond to this sort of thing differently. But I think when you're a young person and you're thinking about whether you're going to be married, you'd like to be married, all of these types of questions, um, and your kind of body is telling you to 
act out of these desires and you want to partner up, all of this sort of stuff. Um, I think we can allow that that's just a natural part of being a young person. And it's a natural part of being human to like yeah. desire that connection. And God made us sexual and it's not wrong to desire that sexual connection. Um, but the way that I think we disciple young people sometimes can be obsessive around that question. And like, mm -hmm. what's the godly way to date, quote unquote. And I'm not saying all that discussion is bad. Like we certainly want to help young people navigate that in a God honoring way. But, um, man, I think we got obsessive with that a little bit and we mm -hmm. tended to over spiritualize something that, um, is not unspiritual. You know, all of our lives should be under Christ's Lordship and yeah. should be lived in, uh, in and under the authority of scripture and all the rest of it. But <clears throat> it's also like going on a date is just going on a date, you know, like it's not kind of this life or death highest stakes spiritual battle necessarily mm -hmm. um it's not automatically this compromise of your relationship with god and you know that was some of the messages that i that i received i think that you know i know some people might still struggle with that i think that's less common today but um maybe the last thing i'll say on this and i you know i talk about this in the adolescence kind yeah. of chapter of my book i talk about it i have a chapter on dating or do i have a chapter on dating yeah you say goodbye, I say hello. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my chapter on dating. Um, and uh, one of the things I'm trying to unpack there is that, you know, God didn't design relationships to be kind of all or nothing or not every kind of male-female relationship to have this erotic edge to it. The New Testament talks about us as a family, as brothers and sisters in yes. Christ. And uh, we don't obsessively think about our siblings in sexual ways. We just intuitively understand, or I should say erotic ways. We understand kind of the, the sexual distinction perhaps between us and our opposite, opposite gendered siblings. But um, we also have very natural kind of boundaries in our minds um, that create um, healthy dynamics in that relationship. We don't, right. we don't have to try to do that. And I think coming into our relationships with others with that as a framework um, can hopefully just kind of like lower the temperature a little bit in how obsessive we need to be about our relationships. Like it is possible to just be friends and we are actually, you know, Jesus modeled this beautifully. It seems to me yeah. in his relationships with women, he uh, was in relationship with women. He wasn't afraid of women. He had an intimate relationship with them and they trusted him and he he trusted them. Um, but, uh, and it can also, at the same time, we can acknowledge that that sexual part of ourselves is a good and beautiful thing that God created in us. And it's not wrong to pursue that. So um, yeah, it, this is a kind of ongoing conversation that I don't know if we can like tie, tie a single bow on. And For I actually sure. think that's part of the problem sometimes is yeah. like we create, we've cr tried to create formulas around how to date um, in a quote unquote biblical way. But the Bible actually isn't all that concerned with the mechanics of how we partner up. This varies from culture to culture. And I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but it does insist on treating others with dignity, having self-control, um, talking about brothers and sisters in Christ as just that, brothers and sisters, remembering you're part of a family. I think those are principles that can guide some of this rather than uh, needing to 
uh, say more than the Bible does about the quote unquote right way to date. Yes. Yes. Uh, I love that. Right. That there is a there is a wisdom that's needed in navigating these things. And uh, praise God, we have his word as a guide. We also have community to to help in that regards. And my hope, you know, for those listening, as you uh, got to be a part of this conversation, one, we hope that this is an ongoing conversation. And maybe mm-hmm. if I could just point out a couple things, man, I hope I hope what you heard, especially um, for, our, for our male listeners, like you, there is more to who you are as a man and as a human being than your sexual activity, right? Than your, your sexual yes. desires that, um, that God is not zoomed in, focused on, on that mm. one area of your life, but actually he's concerned with, with all of your life, uh, and with all of, with all of who you are and, um, all of us, whether we're whether we're young, whether we're older, um, millennial or not, there are, it is a good habit for us to think back on what are things that have that have shaped me. What are ideas um, that have formed me early in life, later in life, and um, how how are those how are those things lining up with with God's word? Are they are, are they moving me closer into uh, the image of Christ? Are they uh, is it am I walking more? Um, in the grace that is available in him, or am I um, being hampered by by guilt and shame and things that, that Christ has already has already paid for? Um, what are the narratives that we're perpetuating to those that we disciple? Um, are we um, there's a way in which we can be uh, so uh, fearful uh, of of the of of darkness and the enemy that we can kind of perpetuate or maybe use bad pictures mm. in order to mm. um, persuade somebody into righteousness. And it's like actually yes. just like it's uh, <laughs> it's God's kindness that draws uh, sinners into repentance. And mm-hmm. it's like actually like Jesus is enough. And like we don't have to, to you, uh, you said a moment ago, we don't have to say more than what the scripture says mm. um, about these things, but standing firm on God's word um, and what he has put forth already um, to conform us and to shape us in the image of Christ um, can do just that. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully we we all learned and grew today. Uh, mm. Zachary, thank you so much just for— Yeah, Tamarcus, I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great conversation. And like I say, I hope this conversation continues um, with, with those uh, around you. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode is produced by Chelsea Conway with editing and support from The Good Podcast Company. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social and check the show notes for more information on how you can best connect with us as well as connect with our guests and ways to support their work. Until next time.